On this episode of the podcast, I speak with economist and public policy analyst Jeffrey Sachs about the economic and political forces currently leading to the environmental destruction of our planet. This discussion is important because Jeffrey's work is not just academic. He served as special advisor to the UN Secretary General for almost two decades, and he advised governments across Latin America, Eastern Europe, and the former Soviet republics in their transition away from Marxist-Leninism to more capitalistic market-driven economies. In this conversation, I ask the question, does capitalism lead to environmental destruction? I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast, supported by the Andrea von Braun Foundation. If you enjoy this content, you can help support me by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And now, here's Jeffrey Sachs. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. What is capitalism, and how does it differ from socialism? You've asked a big question, uh, and uh, it, it's, uh, it, it could be answered in volumes, uh, but I'll answer it briefly. Capitalism uh, is a system uh, in which most uh, economic activity is organized in businesses that are directed by profit uh, and owned by individuals or shareholders. Uh, so it's a market system in which private property predominates. Uh, throughout history, there always have been uh, private uh, activities uh, and private property, but uh, capitalism is a, uh, a modern system, uh, in fact, uh, uh, developed uh, really over the last 400 years uh, that came to predominate uh, a world economy that's very interconnected uh, and driven to a very important extent by the profit motive. One of the main criticisms that I hear of capitalism is that it has hidden costs to its production, right? That it somehow sets up perverse incentives which are destructive to the environment. And so what does this actually mean? Is there something unique about the incentive structures set up within a capitalist system which lead to destruction in a way that's somehow different or greater than in, say, a socialist uh, system? Well, uh, if you look at uh, the uh, historical experience of so-called socialist systems like the Soviet uh, socialist system, it was enormously environmentally destructive. So uh, one wouldn't say that um, it, it somehow escaped uh, uh, the environmental destruction. Economic activity uh, of any kind, whether it is uh, agriculture or mining or industrial production, uh, produces uh, just from its physical uh, processes, uh, potentially harmful pollutants or uh, destruction of uh, physical ecosystems uh, or uh, emissions of greenhouse gases that change the climate. That, those are physical processes. Uh, the technologies that we use uh, have the potential to do great damage. That's true uh, whether those physical processes are being carried out in state-owned enterprises or private-owned enterprises and so forth. One can ask how uh, those destructive forces can best be brought under control 
Uh, and the first idea is to understand them, uh, to understand uh, from a physical, technological, uh, Earth system dynamic what's actually happening. Uh, that needs to be understood whether it's a socialist economy or a, uh, a, a largely capitalist economy. In capitalism, uh, very broadly speaking, because uh, goods and services are produced based on the profit motive, uh, a great deal depends on the prices of products. And if those prices don't reflect the social costs of the goods and services in the sense of not reflecting the pollutants or, or the damages, then we can be sure that the outcomes uh, generated by profit motives uh, could be very, very destructive. Uh, in a state-run system, it's much more likely that the resources are driven by state or political or power considerations, but those can also be very destructive. Uh, so it's not a simple uh, correlation uh, of uh, one kind of economic system and one kind of uh, result. The fact of the matter is that uh, in a uh, industrial technological society, the kinds of physical processes that are involved in all aspects of society have uh, major environmental consequences that if improperly addressed are extraordinarily destructive. And the problem is that uh, the world is now uh, a high throughput uh, system of uh, 8 billion people using uh, a, a range of very powerful large scale technologies drawing to a very large extent on physical earth systems uh, in, and, and having a huge impact on those systems. Uh, and uh, we do not have yet uh, a solution to come to grips with this, either in a political or in an economic institutional way. It's a pretty complicated problem. 200 years ago, the problem was quite different because the population was one tenth the level it is now and the use of uh, uh, input such as fossil fuels was a tiny, tiny fraction of what it is now. The mouths to feed were much less than now. The industrial inputs for producing that food, such as chemical fertilizers, was a, a vanishingly small fraction of what it is today. So this, these are physical problems uh, that involve uh, physics and technology and engineering. Uh, and uh, the socio-economic political systems to manage those complicated technological systems are themselves a, a complex and new challenge to a large extent. But then what parameters do we have to play with? What are the levers that economists and politicians really have at their disposal when addressing problems like climate change or uh, air pollution, the, these sorts of things. Where, 
Well, you know, the, the first thing is uh, to understand the problems properly. And uh, I come back to the fact that we're dealing with complex physical systems, complex engineered systems, complex political and economic systems. So take the climate change issue. Um, well, the climate change issue emerges from uh, the quantum mechanical properties of a few uh, molecules. Uh, these are molecules uh, typically of uh, three or more atoms that have a specific property uh, that they absorb infrared radiation. So carbon dioxide is an example of that. It's got three atoms, a, a carbon atom and two oxygen atoms, and it's configured in a way that it absorbs infrared radiation. And the specific infrared radiation that it absorbs is the Earth's physical radiation that is radiated to space. And the fact that we have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere traps some of that infrared radiation and warms the planet. If you put more of these molecules into the atmosphere, you get more warming. That is the human-induced climate effect. Now, a couple of basic points. First, who knew this? Quantum mechanics was not understood until uh, even uh, the basics in the 1920s and 1930s. So while there was some understanding of uh, spectral uh, absorption and, uh, uh, and uh, radiative uh, properties of certain molecules from the late 1800s, there was not a deep and widespread understanding of what uh, the greenhouse gases were or specifically how they worked in physical terms. It was really in the 1890s with a Swedish Nobel laureate, uh, Svante Arrhenius, uh, that the first attempts were made to understand how human change to the concentration of carbon dioxide could change the climate system. So the understanding of this effect is new to the 20th century. Uh, and it's taken more than a century of science to get uh, more and more clarity uh, as to uh, how various molecules, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, methane, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, and so forth actually change the climate system. It's taken decades to understand the cycling of those molecules because every one of those molecules is a very complex story. Carbon dioxide has a whole uh, very uh, complex cycling because on the one side, CO2 is emitted by various processes. The main one is burning fossil fuels but also changes in vegetative cover, deforestation, uh, other land use uh, changes, uh, and so on, uh, melting of the permafrost. And so even until today, just last week, I received a, a newsletter from one of the world's great climate scientists talking about a new insight into the carbon dioxide cycling, because it's not understood to this moment how the CO2 budget uh, works uh, with the kind of precision that uh, one would need. Now, once the human 
induced aspect of climate change was understood, and this came from the 1870s to 1890s, when Arrhenius made the first calculations of what rising CO2 would mean, he said, oh, not bad. This is good. The climate's going to warm a bit. This is going to be good for us. And so even the understanding of the human impact uh, was a, a long, long process of understanding. What does it mean to have a one or two degrees Celsius warming of the Earth's average temperature in terms of implications for the Earth? This has been one century now to try to understand this, and it's still contested. The predominant view is expressed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I tend to agree with it very much. It says, don't go above 1.5 degrees C warming, because then we could get all kinds of feedback effects and human disasters. But to get to that point is thousands of studies and a highly contested uh, uh, highly contested uh, uh, debate of great complexity, actually. Now, another point, while all of that debate and understanding and scientific research is going on, the real world is going on uh, on its merry way. And one of the things that uh, every economic and political system in the world discovered in the last 200 years is there's an advantage of burning fossil fuels. Uh, you can get rich, you can get powerful, you can beat the hell out of your neighbor with an industrial army, you can do all sorts of things. So there isn't a country in the world that doesn't want to burn fossil fuels because it's power, wealth, uh, sustenance, uh, fertilizer production, you name it. And so as this complex reality has been more and more clarified. The world has gone on, socialist and capitalist, increasing the use of fossil fuels. And we burn more now than ever before. Uh, even till today, we've known about human-induced climate change uh, for uh, basically 125 years in some detail. but. <clears throat> even when we came to understand, hey, this is really dangerous, and even reached a treaty on this in 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, even until today, 2024, we haven't even peaked in the burning of fossil fuels and in the production of fossil fuels. So it still goes up. So the answer to your question is, we are dealing with a complexity at a global scale uh, of uh, a need to understand and appreciate, again, the interaction of economic, engineered, and earth physical systems all together. Greed, power, human well being are all interactive in this. The problem is absolutely at a global scale, because if we each made our own little climate, we'd, we'd determine what to do. But uh, the CO2 that we produce and the methane and the nitrous oxide doesn't just sit above our heads affecting our own climate or our neighborhood or our block or our state or our country or our region. As the earth scientists say, 
these greenhouse gases are uniformly mixed by the atmosphere at a scale of about 30 days. So no matter who puts up the CO2, everybody bears the consequences of it anywhere in the world. And that makes this problem so much more complicated than it otherwise would be. So what we're dealing with is something unprecedented in human history, which is a global scale, highly complex engineered challenge. And you asked me, what are our instruments? <laughs> and I just gave you 10 minutes of verbiage, which might have listeners saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why didn't he answer the question? But the point is, even to answer the question, you have to understand the issue. Uh, and now that we understand a little bit of the issue, we have many, many potential ways to address this by taxes and permits and uh, subsidies and uh, zero carbon energy systems and regulations and so forth. But at a complex global scale in an interconnected, noisy world with vastly different incentives, power structures and levels of understanding, the fact of the matter is decades into this, we do not have this problem under control. So how does change actually happen then? So to give you some examples, we abolished slavery and India is no longer under colonial rule, right? Did these changes come about due to some enlightenment? We became more morally or ethically or culturally enlightened or was it simply that the the technological landscape and the economic landscape and the, the power distribution in the world changed such that it was no longer viable to retain slaves or retain uh, India under, under colonial rule? I think uh, both, but one should say that the process of ending slavery uh, was a hundreds of years process. Um, and by the way, there still is modern slavery, but the process of, for example, the African slave trade uh, was uh, hundreds of years uh, of uh, process and debate. The debate started with uh, the uh, enslavement of Native American populations by Spanish and Portuguese conquerors in the 16th century uh, and uh, papal encyclicals and so forth. And it was decided don't enslave Native Americans, enslave Africans instead. Uh, and then uh, the African slave trade continued for hundreds of years. And the basic, uh, and it's, it's debated, of course, by historians, but the end of uh, the African slave trade definitely had a moral and ethical component to it the campaign in the British Empire was not primarily economically driven uh, motivation or power driven motivation. It was to a significant extent driven by religion, by the Methodists, uh, by the reformers uh, like Wilberforce. Uh, and it required uh, a century of uh, activism. Even then, the United States was having none of it until there was a civil war. Uh, I live in a very weird country 
uh, a country that uh, has uh, various uh, distinctive kinds of nastiness uh, to the extent that we needed a full-scale civil war to end slavery, which was not the fact for many other uh, parts of the world, but the United States is peculiar in its capacities uh, in, in that way. So the answer is uh, complex change is indeed complex. Uh, the imperial uh, era, which is not over yet by any means, but the uh, end of European imperialism after World War II resulted overwhelmingly, not exclusively, overwhelmingly by Europe having had two massive industrial civil wars, World War I and World War II. So they beat the shit out of each other for uh, more than 30 years with the Great Depression in between. And they were so damn exhausted at the end of World War II that the colonies said we're leaving. And Britain, uh, thankfully, was exhausted enough not to be able to fight. The French fought uh, in uh, Algeria and in Vietnam. Uh, the United States took over the fight for a while. So it wasn't a completely peaceful end, but it was the fact that the Europeans had uh, beat the shit out of each other for so long that uh, they were exhausted, uh, exposed as uh, profoundly immoral, uh, and it gave the impetus for decolonization. Very complex processes, uh, in other words. Uh, what we're dealing with, with the Anthropocene, with this uh, huge human impact on the physical environment, is very complex in that way. And the nature of change is also extremely complicated. The one thing one can be quite sure of, though, is the following. We're wrecking the planet at an accelerating rate. The costs of that are immense. Uh, already hundreds of billions of dollars a year loss, if not trillions of dollars a year, and they will get worse in the future. And that will continue to push social, political, and economic systems to do something about it. In other words, the problem won't go away and it won't just simmer. And it is not in an equilibrium because it's getting worse. So then if we jump back to the levers and parameters that we have to play with, in our current economic system, let's say it's a social democracy, in, in the current mixed economy that we have, do we actually have access to the tools that we need? Do economists and pol politicians have access to the tools they need or is some sort of a revolution needed? What's your view there? Well, I think there, again, needs to be a distinction when we talk about tools, because we can talk about tools in a physical engineering sense, and we can talk about tools in a socio-political sense. So let me briefly explain. The tools that we need to address the fossil fuel crisis are basically uh, tools of how we mobilize free energy, physical energy, primary energy, 
to do things that we want to do, whether it's to produce food or to move around uh, in uh, uh, in transport or, or uh, to run the factories and so forth. We actually want to do those things because they benefit our lives, give us longevity, enable us to uh, have uh, many kinds of benefits and we don't want to turn out the lights turn off the electricity and so forth we want to solve the problem of uh, having our cake and eating it too uh, and um, so we want the physical tools to be able to run an energy system safely can it be done yes uh, we actually pretty much have uh, i happen to be a a reader and to some extent a producer uh, or a mobilizer of uh, pathway analyses to how to actually to do this. And I've been involved in that for about 15 years, and I've read hundreds and hundreds of academic studies and policy studies asking exactly the question you ask, what are the engineered tools to do this? And the answer is now basically common knowledge. You make electricity with zero carbon sources, wind, solar. You store that energy because you have intermittency in sunshine or in uh, wind. You can store it in many ways. Uh, one way is uh, hydrogen. Uh, so you use uh, excess intermittent energy to uh, split water uh, hydrolysis and make hydrogen and then the hydrogen can be burned and it releases water instead of co2 when the hydrogen is burned and so on and you can run vehicles on uh, electricity rather than on petroleum and you can run steel mills on hydrogen rather than uh, coal and so on and when you scope out everything we have pretty good answers for 90 plus percent of the energy, not for every detail, but pretty much every energy use can be made from green electricity or a fuel carrier such as hydrogen or synthetic ammonia or something else. And every use of our energy, whether it's in our buildings, our appliances, our factories, our vehicles, can therefore be zero carbon. So at a technical level, not bad, actually. Uh, even at a economic level, not bad, because after 30 years of uh, production cycles of making solar cells or making wind turbines and so forth, the costs have come down in uh, solar cells by factor 100 uh, and more. It's not even so expensive to make the transformation. So that's always my starting point. Yeah, we could do this. And certain places uh, in Europe are quite advanced at doing this, especially Northern Europe, Scandinavia, basically every car that's sold, I'm exaggerating, but almost every car that sold is electric at this point, uh, especially in Norway. Um, and uh, electricity is hydro or, uh, or other zero carbon uh, and uh, the steel uh, plants are going uh, to hydrogen. And so Northern Europe is decarbonizing quite quickly and rather systematically. But here's, here's a basic point. Take uh, Norway, way out in the lead on decarbonizing the economy, but out there pumping and exploring 
uh, natural gas and providing uh, a fossil fuel to the rest of Europe. And so politically, it's decarbonizing at home. It's exporting fossil fuels abroad. Uh, it's it's a, a mess uh, in, a, in a certain way politically. Now it's saying, okay, in the future, we won't export natural gas, we'll export hydrogen, we'll strip the uh, carbon from the methane, we'll put the carbon under the ground, we'll sell the, the hydrogen. Good. Okay, that could be a solution. But what I'm seeing all over the world is fossil fuel production rising, even uh, in places that are shifting their own domestic energy systems to zero carbon because they're exporting the fossil fuels. And my point about that is that you can have technical solutions, but you need political solutions. You need economic solutions. Uh, you need a system approach that says, you know, it's not good enough for you to decarbonize if you're pumping out that stuff to the rest of the world. So it's just burned someplace else. And so when you ask, do we have the solutions? Uh, you know, it, it's a uh, putting the thumb uh, in, in the dike to uh, stop it from bursting. Uh, well, we, we in principle know how to decarbonize a, even a world energy system. We don't yet accomplish that at a political level within most countries. And we certainly don't accomplish it at a geopolitical level in a global approach that solves these problems. When you look at the global scene, and that's where I work day by day at the UN or with governments, my own country, you know, the United States government, bunch of idiots as far as I'm concerned in charge, uh, and that's pretty much a, a not partisan statement. It's been that way for, for decades. Uh, because it's a very corrupt political system. Uh, but uh, what are they interested in? Are, do they have this uh, intense desire to solve the climate change issue? No, uh, they have an intense desire to sell armaments uh, around the world or to uh, have a proxy war with Russia uh, or to uh, compete with China for who's number one. Um, they're not thinking seriously, uh, in my opinion, about how to achieve the global cooperation to solve even the carbon dioxide part of the larger greenhouse emissions story. Uh, yeah, they give lip service to it. They go to the conferences. They say how much they care. But what they really care about is getting reelected uh, or uh, getting contributions from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, or promoting U.S. natural gas exports to Europe to substitute for Russian uh, exports uh, to Europe that were cut off when the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipeline and on and on and on. It's not serious. Uh, it's not what you would expect for a world crisis problem. Uh, and it's not primarily the companies, though, Companies like ExxonMobil are absolutely disgusting. Uh, they will lie, cheat, and do anything to keep pumping oil. But the problem is more political, actually. 
Uh, of course, Exxon gives its campaign contributions, and so they contribute to the political crisis. But the political crisis, to my mind, is bigger than the technological challenge. In other words, the technological challenge is massive, but it's pretty well understood. And we could solve these problems technologically at uh, no uh, significant incremental uh, monetary cost, in fact. Uh, but we need a set of institutions to get this done. And again, to come back to the original question, whether it's socialist or capitalist, you need a government that is directed properly to doing the right thing. And that by itself is a very difficult problem because governments have other interests uh, and uh, they have financial interests, they have corruption interests, they have power interests, they have military interests. And what we're talking about ranks somewhere in the middle of their list. So then how do you reset the priority list? It is uh, actually along, along with that, I just want to ask on top of that sort of maybe together, is the problem then corporate capture or it's just the overall structure itself has poor incentives? Look, you mentioned some very big uh, uh, changes in the world like um, ending slavery uh, or uh, ending in, in imperial rule. And if you would ask Gandhi, not to make a personal comparison, but just if you would ask Gandhi in 1910, so how do you end the British Empire here? Uh, he would have said, oh, that's very complicated. <laughs> uh, and it, it took many decades. And as I said, it took uh, two world wars uh, for Britain to leave uh, India. Uh, and without the two world wars, uh, Britain would never have uh, left India peacefully, uh, relatively peacefully, the way that it did in 1947. Uh, if you had asked Wilberforce in uh, 1770, so what's your plan to end slavery? Uh, he would not have had a clear route to the 1830s decisions to finally uh, end uh, slavery in uh, the British Empire, which uh, was a stepping stone to a worldwide end of the slave trade. So if you ask today, so what is the answer? Uh, there is no single answer, certainly. And those of us uh, like myself who trudge from COP1 to COP10 to COP20 to COP28 to COP29, which is where we'll be in 2024, uh, it's a lot of drudgery. It's easy to be cynical. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the crisis continues to get worse and we need to continue to uh, push on all different directions and margins and uh, understand that in trying to move or shift a highly complex system of systems, you don't really know the answer to that question. Uh, you have to pursue many different approaches, public understanding, uh, political action, technological 
innovation, uh, reform of international institutions. Each one is open to all sorts of cynical charges that that's a waste of time. But the fact of the matter is uh, those are um, those are our points of entry to uh, have this change. And we are at the following stage right now. The world has agreed repeatedly this is urgent. Okay, that's good. That's not to be taken for granted. We have a treaty uh, that says uh, that all countries of the world that are UN member states, all of them, agree to stabilize the concentration of greenhouse gases in order to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. That's the verbiage of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which went into force in 1994. We have the Paris Climate Agreement. We have a scientific process called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which gives a summary of the consensus view uh, of this issue in multiple dimensions and thousands and thousands of pages are produced every few years in new cycles of updating uh, the uh, statement of what is the consensus, not the universal consensus, but what is the broad consensus on a variety of issues. We have most countries in the world with national targets to decarbonize their energy systems by mid-century or 2060 or 2070. So that's a lot of progress. We have techn technological answers, which are pretty good across most of the uh, sectors of the economy. Not bad. When you go to the climate conference, as I just was uh, in Dubai, COP28, there were nearly 100,000 people there. You could say, oh, that what a jamboree, how much greenhouse gas was wasted to get people there and so forth. But it's actually not the point. The real point was that you have nearly 100,000 people coming from all over the world because they're actively engaged in trying to solve this problem and they go to meet others and make connections and network and sell zero carbon uh, energy products uh, and many, many other things because there is a worldwide sense of urgency. And we also have on the downside, the warmest year in uh, history, perhaps the warmest year in 10,000 years, by the way, or certainly without question, uh, one of them, uh, perhaps uh, in 125,000 years since the Eemian uh, epoch uh, geologically uh, before the last ice age. So we're in crisis and the warming is accelerating and the damages are accelerating. And 2024 is likely to set a new record and perhaps a new record for damages. And we're going to miss the target of limiting uh, warming to 1.5 degrees C. So you look at that picture, it's complicated. On the one side, solutions are more and more clear, technologically, politically, 
geopolitically, scientifically. On the other side, the dangers are not only advancing, they're accelerating, actually. Uh, and we're going to pass certain thresholds. And we could uh, already have passed the threshold or soon pass the threshold in which a large chunk of the West Antarctic ice sheet is going to disintegrate. And we're going to have a pulse of several meters of sea level rise. And I can tell you, if that happens, and it's quite possible, we're going to say, holy shit, how did we ever let that happen? Because all over the world, there will be catastrophic consequences of that. And so this is our complicated reality right now. So the solution might be complicated, but right now, if I gave you a budget, I come into some inheritance, let's say, give you a hundred yeah. million. hundred million. <laughs> okay. I, let's I, start I, with two, two, that, two trillion. That, you need a, that's you too need small, a, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, I give you, I give you the, the amount doesn't really matter because the question is, where does the dollar go furthest? So for instance, we could invest somewhere in the developing world or we could invest somewhere in, in uh, the developed world. Or if I, if I gave you this budget today, where do you put it? Well, I'll tell you what I've been advocating for the last 10 years, uh, very straightforward. I want every government at the national level and at the regional level, I'll explain what that means in a moment, to have a plan that is detailed and that is a 25 year scenario of reaching zero emissions by mid-century. And so that idea, which I've been pushing, uh, got into the Paris Agreement. It's Article 4.19. Uh, it calls for every country to have a low emission development strategy. My point has been very simple. You can't do this by short run thinking. You can't say, oh, in the next five years, I'm gonna cut emissions by so-and-so and think you've solved the problem because short-term measures may be irrelevant for the long-term getting to zero. So I want every government to have a clear, stated, quantified plan basically an Excel spreadsheet. Where is your energy going to come from? Uh, how many uh, terawatts do you need of capacity in wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, carbon capture and storage? How much hydrogen are you going to be producing it domestically or, or are you going to be importing it from your next door neighbor? Here's where the regional element comes in any solution for any part of the world requires cooperation of neighboring countries. The United States absolutely cannot decarbonize unless it's cooperating at least with Canada and Mexico. And the clean energy of New York City, where I live, is going to include hydropower from northern Quebec, just as an example. In Europe, my God, it's 27 uh, tightly packed countries in the European Union. You don't want 27 national uh, energy systems. You want a European-wide grid. But by the way, not just European-wide, Europe doesn't have as much sunshine as Morocco and uh, Tunisia and uh, Algeria and Libya and Egypt. 
Europe ought to be importing a lot of sunshine across the Mediterranean through submarine cables. And it should be importing a lot of uh, uh, sunshine and hydrogen from the Middle East. So the European Union should have a plan, not 27 national plans. And the EU should be sitting down with Saudi Arabia saying, you know, we're going to buy a lot of hydrogen from you. Is that happening? Hell no. No, because they're not grown-ups. because we're doing geopolitics, because we're not talking seriously about how to make a proper midterm plan. In Asia, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, the 10 ASEAN countries should have an integrated grid. By the way, also with Northeast Russia, Mongolia, and other countries. Is that happening? Hell no, they're our enemy. We're never gonna get on a grid connecting China and Japan and so on and so on and so on. So my advice is understand this, you're building infrastructure that's going to be 25 or 30 or 40 years. This is not the result of a million or billion individual decisions. You're building a system. For example, a power grid. That's a one system uh, idea. What's your plan? Well, most places don't have plans. And this comes back to the question, is capitalism the right uh, institution? Not for a plan like that, not at all. On the other hand, maybe uh, within that plan, there are a hundred different solar parks, each of them privately owned and maximizing profits as part of that plan. That's a capitalist component in an overall government-led plan. So it's a little bit more complicated than one or the other. It's some kind of blend of market and non-market, uh, long-term plan, uh, and so on. But I think that the starting point where I'd put your bucks, uh, if it's if it's a, a tiny drop in the bucket, like $100 million, uh, I would uh, basically give a million to each government and say, come up with your damn plan. And in six months, we'll have a big Zoom conference together. We'll go over each other's plans. We'll grade them. Uh, if uh, they're not adequate, you're going to go back and do more homework. And we're going to have within a year a global understanding of how the hell we're really going to get to zero together. So if we can come back to the original question, just to get your, your sense, if, if someone has a focus on the precise boundary between mixed and control economies, is if I can shrink your response down, yeah. is, is it in some sense naive to point that out as being the, the main the main aspect that you should be focusing on it's just it's far too complex a question to to boil it down uh, to that the countries that are most successful right now in the world in getting their internal situation in order are actually the northern european countries um so if you wanted to say how do we get to zero i'd say look at Denmark, Norway, Sweden, 
for the last 20 years, they've had a carbon tax, they've had a national goal, uh, they have uh, uh, built the infrastructure for electric vehicles, uh, they've developed uh, their homegrown uh, wind uh, uh, companies uh, like Vestas uh, in, uh, in Denmark. Uh, they have experimented and uh, built uh, hydrogen-based steel mills and so on. They're doing that job. Now, if you look at those economies, those are mixed social democratic economies by and large. So the size of the public sector is quite large. They're market economies, they trade, they're capitalist in some key sense, but they also have a government sector that spends roughly 50% of the gross domestic product uh, in uh, public investments or public transfer payments uh, or in public services like uh, education and healthcare. So that's really a mixed economy. Uh, that's not a free market economy, nothing like it. It's not a state-owned uh, uh, Soviet-style economy. It's really a mixed, complicated system. And it works on the whole quite well. Uh, and therefore, if I had to pick a model, I would still turn to those countries. I would tell them, by the way, stop thinking about NATO and Ukraine and blah, 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 and stop getting off this war kick. Stop listening to the United States. We're a crazy country. Uh, you should understand that uh, uh, the US is not a social democratic society. It's a very militarized and corrupt political system, but that's a different set of topics. Uh, but what I'm saying is that we can even look not just at the technological choices, but we can even look at relatively successful socioeconomic systems and say, you know, it could be done. Uh, it's possible. But Norway, with the uh, 5 million people, Sweden with 10 million people and so forth, uh, these are small societies and 8 billion people with huge global diversity in the world uh, and huge power diversity and uh, huge perceptions of national insecurity, risks, and so on. So even if you have a good example, the real problems right now are global and geopolitical to a huge extent. And the big powers have a disproportionate role in this and responsibility. And uh, 10 countries more or less account for about 70% of fossil fuel production, roughly speaking. Uh, and that means the United States, China, Russia, uh, of course, the EU, uh, Saudi Arabia, and a few others need to sit down and get serious and and come up with a basic framework for success. And they don't do that uh, because uh, they don't understand how to do that, unfortunately. But that's uh, another thing that I might use part of your 100 million for, uh, which would be to uh, entice them to uh, come to a room together 
uh, and uh, say we're going to have a, 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 a wonderful meal together and you're going to sit down and then tell them you're not leaving this room till you agree on decarbonizing and a basic plan of action to do it. And they've never done that. And the United States doesn't even think to talk to Russia right now. The opposite, it wants to bomb Russia, wants to destroy Russia, wants to isolate Russia. This is so primitive, so misguided, so propagandistic, uh, so filled with bluster. Same with US-China relations. They need to act like grownups. So we don't even need big bucks for that. We need uh, someone to tell these leaders uh, to behave themselves. Being respectful of your time, we're going to have to wrap up now. But let me just close with one uh, quick question. Does humanity have a natural stopping point or are we going to consume ourselves into extinction? If there is a human extinction, it's going to come from nuclear war, uh, which is uh, absolutely possible. Uh, and the single biggest priority on our planet is to tone down the war making and tone down the militarism and get the major powers and especially the nuclear powers to back off and get on a path of disarmament. This is by far the most important single factor of human survival. Second factor, by the way, is to stop the secretive biotechnology of uh, fussing with the uh, microorganisms with the incredible sophistication to make new viruses like I believe we did in uh, creating SARS-CoV-2. That's another topic, but my view is it was uh, U.S. biotech that uh, brought us uh, this virus and that the U.S. has basically covered up as best it can uh, its uh, role in this. So that's the second thing. I don't want us to uh, go extinct because some genius uh, has uh, added a furin cleavage site to some virus uh, that uh, has created uh, the next pandemic even worse uh, than the one caused by SARS-CoV-2. When it comes to the environment, what we are likely to do is not to drive ourselves to extinction, but to severely even irreversibly destroy part of our ecosystems. So our effects on ecosystems are gradual, but persistent, even irreversible in human scale. And if we destroy the West Antarctic ice sheet by warming, and maybe we've already uh, made that inevitable, we don't know what the uh, threshold is, but maybe it's already inevitable, the sea level will rise for all intents and purposes irreversibly. And that will have catastrophic effects for hundreds of millions of people. If the permafrost in the boreal belt uh, melts and releases a pulse of methane and CO2 that is vast and propels us to three or four degrees Celsius warming, the consequences could be absolutely horrific. If we turn off the ocean thermohaline circulation, uh, as is already slowing, uh, the consequences uh, could be uh, 
incredibly persistent and incredibly nasty. Are we likely to overshoot some of these dangerous thresholds? Probably yes, because we do not have self-control. We do not have grown-up behavior. Our political systems are corrupted. I would say especially the United States system is broken right now. It's a very powerful country, but a very corrupt political system. So we're on a path to overshoot and to reach thresholds that have feedback effects that could be enormous and essentially, as I say, on a civilizational timescale, irreversible, at least uh, in a matter of uh, centuries. And so that risk is absolutely real. It's on us. These are the years uh, of choice and decision making. And that's why every day, the first thing I say every single day is stop the damn wars and pay attention to something that's important. Jeffrey Sachs, it's been a pleasure. Good to be with you. Thanks. Cheers.